So you think you had a bad week. And I read an interesting news story a couple of days ago about a woman down in Texarkana, Texas. Uh, she was outside working in her garden, just puttering around, and she saw a snake. Now, deathly scared of snakes, she ran into the garage. She got a can of gasoline and came back out to the garden, doused the snake, lit a match, tossed it onto the uh, unhappy creature. And so set it ablaze in this slithering serpent then crawled into a pile of brush. Now, unfortunately, fortunately, the pile of brush was up against the side of her house. Yeah, so she, she now calls 911. She says, I tried to kill the snake, but the house done caught fire. And so they send the fire trucks out, but by the time the fire trucks arrive, the house has been burnt to the ground. Now, doesn't that put your life in perspective a little bit? You had a hard week? Okay, we're talking about trials. We're talking about hardships today. We're starting a brand new 12-week series working uh, verse by verse through the epistle of James. Epistle is just a fancy word that means letter, the letter of James. So if you brought a Bible, and I hope you did because as you go through James, you'll mark it up, and by the time we come to the end of the book, you'll know it backwards and forwards. So turn to James. It's toward the end of your New Testament, and if you would take the outline uh, from your program and fill that out as we go along. Now, before we get into James, a couple of side announcements I want to make. Uh, one is, I want you to know that today we're making a transition to the new NIV translation of the Bible. Now, we've always used the NIV, it stands for New International Version, at Christ Community because it's a, a wonderful contemporary English translation that's been compiled by a team of Old Testament Hebrew scholars, New Testament Greek scholars, guys who are evangelical, who are brilliant. It's a, it's a wonderful translation. And a couple of years ago, in 2011, they updated it. And we have continued to use the older version, the 1984, because we realized that if, if you're holding a Bible that's older than two years old, you still have the previous uh, edition of it. And about 10% of the words have changed. Now, when I say that, I don't want to give you the jitters. They didn't change the meaning of anything. It's just that you know, 25 years after the 84 edition was published, they figured it was time to update the language. Uh, English words change. Our vocabulary changes. And so that's what they've done. Uh, we have resisted going to the 2011, knowing that most of you still have the 1984 version. But the publisher has now, in the last month, taken the 1984 edition off the market. So it's out of circulation. You can't buy it anymore in a written form. It's not available electronically. So we decided, okay, we got to go with the 2011. Frankly speaking, I still like the 1984 version better than the 2011, but this is, this is progress, right? So the reason I'm telling you this, if you're opening your Bible and you're following along and the words are just slightly different from what you see on the screen, you're going to say, whoa, I thought we had the same version as the church. Well, you do but we're now using the, the updated version. It's still, I still think the NIV is the best English translation out there. If you want to know why, because this isn't just a matter of taste, there are good reasons why I think this translation is the best. I explain why in my four-book series, Bible Savvy. So one more reason to pick up that, <laughs> those books. And that leads me to my second announcement. I just want to reiterate something that all of our campuses are hearing 
in announcements again today, and that is that we started last weekend on Easter, we started a Bible reading initiative. We want to get as many people as possible reading the Bible on a daily basis. Okay, quick poll here. Don't want to do this to embarrass anybody by any means, but I'm interested in knowing how many of you read the Bible at least five out of seven days this past week. Just put a hand up. Good, a lot of you did. And our goal is to get everybody reading the Bible with regularity, whether you're still a skeptic or you're a new Christ follower, never cracked the binding on the Bible before, or you're a committed Christ follower. We want you reading the Bible. So we're offering you three tools. Again, this is reiteration, but some of you were on spring break last weekend, didn't hear us say it last weekend. We're offering you free Bibles. Please don't take it if you don't need it, if you only have a copy. Don't, don't like pick up six copies to give away as birthday gifts or whatever, because we're, we're paying for all these. Last weekend, we gave away hundreds of Bibles, which I think is really cool. The second tool is we've got a Bible reading schedule. It's put out by Scripture Union. It will take you through the Bible once, uh, through the Old Testament, twice through the New Testament, every five years. It's a leisurely pace, so you won't always be falling behind like some of those Bible reading plans. And uh, so we hope that you'll consider uh, trying that out. We offer them to anyone who wanted to pick one up last weekend. Over 4,000 Bible reading schedules were picked up last weekend. So my hope and my prayer is those of you who picked it up will read it. You'll follow along. And let me say this, like any good habit, good habits are kind of three steps forward, two steps back, right? So some of you are, oh, yeah, I picked that up and I haven't looked at it. Or I started to read and I read like two days in a row and, you know, then I've skipped three or four days. Don't matter. It don't matter. Just pick it up where you left off. If you want to back, you know, if you want to back read the passages you missed because you're OCD, feel free. You know, if you just want to start where you pick it up, just get back into it. Okay, the, 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 the best spiritual disciplines are the no-guilt ones, okay? So just pick it up where you left off and start into it again. And then the final resource, that's free as well, by the way. That costs about 50 and we were giving them away for free last weekend. The final tool are these books that I've written that Moody, uh, Moody Publishers came out with this past week, the Bible Savvy series. Four books in the series. We're selling them for 40 to 50% off. We could only do that last weekend and this week. We're doing it uh, for that price, first of all, because I, I want you to know this. I don't get a penny. Okay, One of the reasons we could sell them cheaply is I don't make... Uh, any sort of honorarium or royalties on this if they're sold at Christ Community Church. That's my choice because I don't want you thinking this is a money-making deal for me. And secondly, we're able to sell them at this price because Moody's made them available for these two weekends only. So after today, they go back up to the usual price. So if, if you want to squirrel away Christmas gifts for relatives and whatever, you know this is the time to, uh, to purchase this at 40 to 50% off. And I hope you'll get into these books and learn how to study the Bible. I, I also launched, I want you to know about this, I launched a website this past week to kind of go with the books. Uh, there are two videos that we created over the last six months, two five-minute videos for every book. If you're reading the book, you'll see there's one of those little uh, barcode-type jobs that you, you read with your smartphone, and it'll take you directly to the video. If you don't have a smartphone, just go to BibleSavvy.com, and you'll find the videos that go with the books. The other resource there I want you to know about is I started blogging this last week. So two blogs every Monday, every Saturday, I'll be blogging following the Bible reading schedule. You see a theme here? 
I just, I want you reading the Bible, and so I'll be commenting on the passages that you would have, you, you would have read yourself in the previous few days, so we can compare notes. It's not my commentary, it's my coaching of you to help you draw from the text insights for your own life. So that's what the BibleSavvy.com blog is all about. Now, one last word, and then, then we'll move in, into the epistle of James. I want to ask a favor. Okay, I am just a little-known author, and I'm cool with that because my goal in life is to be the best pastor I can possibly be for Christ Community Church. That's all I want to be, okay? But thanks. Yeah, you're kind. But little-known authors seldom get their books re read because nobody finds out about them. So I'm not Max Lucado. I'm not Beth. Well, you could see I'm not Beth Moore. Uh, so they sell a bazillion books, but... Publishers don't invest a lot of marketing dollars in people like me. So if people are going to find out about the Bible-savvy books, it's going to take you helping me out in this regard. So the way you do it is through social media. On your Facebook page, you talk it up. If you're a, you know, a Twitter person, you tweet a friend and say, hey, check these books out or go to this uh, website for Jim's blog or pastor's blog. Uh, you go to Amazon.com and you write a review, a, a nice review. Okay, say something nice about the books, and then people read that stuff, and they say, oh, you know, I need to check it out. So if you would help me, we'll, we'll get the word circulated. I will never become famous, but hopefully more people will get into God's word than ever before. So uh, we'll work together on that if you'll uh, use your social media to spread the word. Now, the epistle of James. I want to take a look at the opening verse and then give you a little bit of historical background to this epistle. He says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. Stop there for a moment. In ancient times, when you were writing a letter, you would write it on a scroll made of papyrus, which was a plant material, and then you'd, you'd roll it up and you'd put your name at the top. Now, why do you think you'd put your name at the top of a letter rather than at the end of a letter like we do today? Okay, because you don't want the recipient to have to unroll the whole scroll to find out who did this come from. So you, you put it right at the top of the letter, and at the top of this scroll it said James. Now, James was a very popular first century Jewish name. There were a lot of Jameses out there. There are several Jameses in your Bible, uh, one of whom was one of the 12 disciples of Jesus. But that's not the James who wrote this epistle. The James who wrote this epistle was Jesus' half-brother, James. Mary had a, a baby named Jesus by the Holy Spirit, and then uh, after that, she and Joseph consummated the relationship, and they had other kids, and uh, these were Jesus' half-siblings, if you would, and probably the oldest among them was James. Uh, interestingly, James was not a believer. He was not a follower of Jesus during Jesus' earthly ministry. In fact, James was somewhat cynical about his half-brother. If you turn to John chapter 7, you'll read an account where Jesus is toying with the thought of going to Jerusalem, and James says to him rather sarcastically, yeah, you ought to go, you know, kind of do your hocus pocus, maybe drum up some followers. They're very cynical about Jesus. So how did James become a believer? The Apostle Paul tells us how in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 7. He tells us that James, Jesus' half-brother, was one of those individuals to whom Jesus deliberately appeared after his resurrection. 
Now, friends, I would love to have seen the look on James' face when that happened. Okay? And Jesus shows up in the room and says, hey, bro, still don't believe? (laughs) So James became a believer. He then became the leader of the church in Jerusalem. And the Jerusalem church was kind of Christianity central in those days. So James was the top dog. But interestingly, as you read his letter, he opens up, identifies, this is from James. He doesn't say, James, top dog. He doesn't say, James, half-brother of you-know-who. He says, James, a what? Servant. That was weak. Okay? James, a what at all four campuses? A servant. James, a servant. You see, a humble guy. A guy who has surrendered his life to his half-brother, Jesus. And we pick that up not only because he uses that word servant, which, by the way, in our English text, it's right at the beginning of verse 1, James a servant. In the original Greek text of James' epistle, it's the last word in verse 1. He says, literally, James, of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, a servant. In other words, I'm James the caboose at the end of the train. Jesus is the locomotive. And the the other way he communicates his humility and his surrender to Christ, the prominence of Christ, is he calls him, not his half-brother, he calls him the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord is a word that means master or boss. And so James is recognizing the fact that Christ is the Lord of his life. Now, who is James writing to? He identifies his recipients in verse 1 as the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. In the Old Testament, the 12 tribes referred to the people of Israel. James is writing his letter to Christ followers. So why does he call them the 12 tribes? Well, probably because these believers, these Christ followers, come from Jewish backgrounds, which is the background of most of the early followers of Jesus, the early church. People were coming out of Judaism to follow Christ. So he's writing to Jewish believers who have been scattered among the nations. Why do you think they had been scattered? Call it out if you think you know. Why? Yeah, persecution. It heats up real quickly in the early days of the church. If you read through the book of Acts, the history of the early church, by chapter 7, there's the first martyr, a guy named Stephen, who's stoned to death because of his faith in Christ. In the very next chapter, other believers in Jerusalem decide it's time to get out of town, okay? It's time to get out of Dodge, and so they are scattered among the nations. So James is writing to these Jewish, persecuted, scattered Christ followers, and he's He's writing to encourage them to keep the faith. The New Testament book of James is all about faith. Write that down. That's the theme in your outline. Theme of James, faith. But not easy believism faith. Not, oh, oh, yeah, I'm a Christian sort of faith. We're talking about gutsy faith. Tenacious faith. Servant-hearted faith. Roll up your sleeves and get dirty faith. Faith that first makes a difference in my own life, and then because it's made a difference in my life, I make a difference in my world sort of faith. Now, one of the things you're going to discover about James as we study this book together is that he doesn't pull any punches. James is very direct. 
James is, is an in-your-face kind of guy. On the other hand, there's a loving, kind side to James. In fact, his favorite expression for his readers is brothers and sisters. You'll hear him saying this again and again. Brothers and sisters or dear brothers and sisters. And then he'll say something really hard, really butt-kicking. Okay, because that's, that's James. He packs a wallop but he's a a loving sort of guy. So the first topic he addresses is trials and hardships. Life had hit the fan for his readers. They'd gone through persecution. They'd been exiled. They're struggling now in new locations, scattered uh, among the nations to find jobs, to put food on the table, to raise their families, to to, uh, make new friends. But James wasn't about to let these folks throw a pity party for themselves. James gives them, and and, in so doing, gives us four extremely practical steps to take when facing tough times. Some of you are in tough times right now. Some of you don't know it, but your next tough time is right around the corner. And so I would encourage you to write down these uh, four steps. You know, every week when I preach, I preach at me. And as I was putting these together this week, ruminating on the text, I thought, this is good stuff, Pastor Jim. You know, you ought, to, you ought to write this down. So these are the four steps you want to keep in mind when facing hardships. Number one, change your perspective. Okay, number one, change your perspective. Now, I, I want to read verses 2 and 3 to you, so follow along in your 2011 NIV. Okay, or you'll see it up here on the screen. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters. There he goes. Whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. I uh, love the story, and you've heard me tell it before. I love the story about the little boy who was a bright-eyed optimist. He always saw the sunny side of everything. But his parents were a little bit bit concerned about Junior because they thought one day he's going to wake up to the harsh realities of this world and it's going to disillusion him. So we better do something now to get him ready, get his feet on the ground. And so his birthday was coming up and instead of buying him a really nice birthday gift, they they took a box and they went to a nearby horse farm and they scooped some horse apples into the box and then they wrapped it, and they gave it to him as his gift. You know, this kind of shock therapy. See what he does with this. So the little boy opens the box on his birthday, and he immediately starts shouting, Yes! Yes! His parents can't, can't believe it. They, they say, What are you so excited about? And he said, With all this poop, there's got to be a pony someplace. <laughs> Now, if I could take the two verses in James I just read to you and paraphrase them somewhat crudely, it's if life gives you poop, look for the pony, okay? (laughs) Change your perspective. Some of you will not hear another word I say. (laughs) Now, look at verse 2. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. I want to park on that word consider for a moment. Okay, consider, consider. (laughs) This this is not an emotional directive James is giving us. He is not instructing us to feel the joy in the midst of our trials. This is a rational directive. Consider is a rational word. James is instructing us to change the way we think about our trials. 
to consider the fact that there, there may be an upside to, to those trials. There may be something for us to gain from them, something that results ultimately in joy, even though we don't necessarily feel the joy initially. It's often been said, you've heard this before, and even though it, it may sound initially like a cliche, it's, it's very, very true. What, what happens to you is not what makes or breaks you, but it's your interpretation of what happens to you. It's what you tell yourself about what happens to you that makes or breaks you. You see the difference? It's not what happens to you, it's your interpretation. It's what you tell yourself about what happens to you that makes or breaks you. So let me give you three things to say to yourself that will change your perspective the next time you encounter a trial of some sort. And these three things you want to say to yourself come right out of James verses, chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. First, we need to say to ourselves, this is a regular part of life. This is a regular part of life. Say this with me, all our campuses. This is a regular part of life. See, so often our trials come to us as intruders. They come unexpectedly. And the unexpectedness of our trials throws us off. We're ambushed. We can't believe this is happening to us. We can't believe that God hasn't protected us. Isn't that God's job? Let me point out that we live in a fallen world, and every one of us has contributed to that fallenness. And in a fallen world, cancer happens. In a fallen world, downsizing at work happens. In a fallen world, rebellious teenagers happen. Flat tires happen. Loneliness happens. No date for prom happens. These things happen to everybody, Christ followers included. Go back to verse 2 and circle the word. If you got your Bible, and by the way, even if you're reading an electronic Bible off your phone or your iPad, you could still mark it up. So circle the word whenever in the middle of verse 2. James says, whenever you face trials. Not if you face trials. Whenever. Because this is a regular part of life. Second thing, you can say to yourself, this is similar to what other people are experiencing. This is similar to what other people are experiencing. Go back to verse 2, last phrase. James speaks of trials of many kinds. You see that phrase, of many kinds? Most of us are convinced that there is only one kind of trial in this world, and that is the sort of trial that we are experiencing. See, my trial is the worst trial in the world. Nobody else on the planet has a trial as bad as mine. And so if, if we're out of work and a friend complains to us that her husband is drinking too much, what do we think to ourselves? We think, well, at least he's got a job. You know, he should try going without a paycheck for a year like I have. <laughs> or we're depressed and somebody comes to us and says, oh, my sump pump didn't work this past week and my newly finished basement got flooded. And we're thinking to ourselves, that's it? That's the best you got? Because a month from now, your, your basement's going to be dry. You'll probably have it remodeled by then, but I will still be in the pits, still be depressed. 
You're at school and you're struggling with math and your friend comes to you and says, my boyfriend just broke up with me. And you're thinking to yourself, the guy's a jerk anyway. <laughs> but, but me? I'm failing math. Like, I'm not going to get into college. I won't get a job. I won't be able to raise a family. My life is ruined. See, the trial that is happening to us is the worst trial in the world. Other people's trials, friends, are just as painful to them as ours are to us. You ever play the party game, Would You Rather? Okay, it comes in a box, and you get this stack of cards, and each card gives you a choice. Would you rather this or that? And then everybody's got to silently vote, and then you, you try to guess how other people have voted. All right, so... It, it, so Something like this. Would you rather spend a night floating on an inner tube in the ocean or lost in a jungle? Got to choose. Which, which would you rather? Okay. Would you rather, here's another one. Would you rather have a little red light blinking in the corner of your eye or a constant pinging in your ear? <laughs> which would you rather? Okay, here, let me give you one more. Would you rather have your mother live with you the first year of marriage or your mother-in-law come for dinner every day for the first two years? <laughs> now, whenever I play this game, Sue and I get it out when we have friends over, whenever I play this game, I can never decide. I mean, I look at these and they're both awful to me. <laughs> and, and that's the way it is with trials. Your trials are no worse than anybody else's. Everybody's trial is painful to them, which is why we need to say to ourselves constantly, this is similar to what other people are experiencing. Third thing we could say to ourselves, this is a test. This is a test. Look at the middle of verse 3. I read it to you a moment ago. Circle the word testing. Trials are a testing of our faith. Now, what does that testing accomplish? Well, assuming for a moment that your faith is genuine, because the testing may prove that it's not genuine, but if it is genuine, and if in fact you're changing your perspective that you've learned to say to yourself, this is a regular part of life, this is similar to what other people are experiencing, this is a test, if your perspective is changing, then the testing of your faith will grow your character. That's what it will accomplish, which leads us to the second insight from these opening words of James. When you're faced with a trial, first, change your perspective. Second, grow your character. Let's go back to the text. I'm going to reread verse 3 and then continue on. Verse 3, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. So let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. What word do you see repeating here? Perseverance. Okay, that's a Bible study, a little clue as to you know, when you're looking for the meaning of a passage, look for those repeating words or phrases. Circle the word perseverance in verse 3 and again in verse 4. In the original Greek text of James' epistle, this is a compound word, a two-part word. The verb form, uh, to persevere, comes from the Greek word hupomeno. Hupo means under, meno means to remain or to stay put. And so hupomeno means to remain under something, to stay put under something. In the case of trials, it means to stay under the weight of that trial. 
Now, isn't that interesting? Because when you and I face trials, what's the first thing we ask God to do? What is it? Take it away. Get rid of it. Fix it. Remove it. Change it. Heal it. Replace it. We want God to alter our circumstances. And what is it that God wants to alter? Us. God wants to change us. God wants to grow our character. And you know how character grows? You know how it's strengthened? Most often by hupomeno, by remaining under the weight of some trial. Now, several years back, I, I was working out at the health club, and I was doing my usual sets of push-ups. And very first set, I'd done a, a couple of push-ups, and my left arm crumpled underneath me. And I thought, that's kind of odd. And I thought, you know, maybe... Uh, maybe this is flu or something, and so I laid off working out for a week, and I got back to it a week later, and the same thing happened. I'd lost all strength in my left arm. So I went to the doctor, and uh, he sent me to a neurologist, and they put me through an MRI, and they found one of the, uh, the presenting causes was a pinched nerve in the back of my neck. So they sent me to therapy to take the pressure off the nerve, and then they started to work on strengthening my, my triceps, which was totally weak. Now, how do you think they strengthen a muscle? Okay, they work that muscle to death. So that PT came up with all sorts of creative, torturous ways to work that triceps. So I was doing tricep curls, and I was doing those, you know, those big rubber band things, and I was walking around squeezing lumps of clay, and I had a medicine ball that I had to beat up against the wall, you know, one of those heavy balls, and go at it until it dropped on my head because I couldn't do it anymore. See, the way to strengthen a muscle is not by avoiding all resistance. It's by remaining under the weight of that resistance. Now, you know where I'm going with this, don't you? That's not only the way to strengthen a muscle. That's also how character grows. I mean, look again at verse 4. James says, let perseverance, okay, let remaining under a trial, let it finish its work so that you may be mature and complete. He's talking about your character. Not lacking anything. Not lacking anything. Let me ask you a personal question. When it comes to your character today, what traits are you currently lacking? Now, if you don't know the answer to that question, but you came with someone in your family, turn to them right now, and they'll, they'll tell you, okay? What, what traits could you use more of? I mean, be honest. Could you use more patience? Are, are you lacking when it comes to trust, trust in God? Are you a bit deficient when it comes to generosity or empathy for other people or humility are you lacking in a willingness to serve or in moral purity? How do you think God is going to produce those traits in you? If you pray, Lord, make me a more patient person, what do you think God does? Does he get out the fairy dust and sprinkle it on you? And now suddenly, effortlessly, you're patient. You're Mr. Patience, Ms. Patience. You smile when somebody cuts you off in traffic. You smile when the Cubs blow a lead in the ninth inning, okay? You, you, you smile 
When your husband complains about dinner or your boss passes over you for, for a promotion, it's effortless. You got sprinkled with the patient's fairy dust. I don't think that's how it works. I know that's not how it works. You won't find that in Scripture. You won't find that in your personal experience, but I'll tell you how it does work. Okay, God looks at your life, and he notes what character you're lacking, and he sends a trial into your life until you cry out, oh, God, help me, strengthen me. And so he begins to give you the strength to endure the trial that produces the, the, the character. You don't get out from under the weight of the trial. It requires effort. Sometimes you pay the price of pain. But God is determined to grow your character. The next time you face some sort of hardship, maybe you're facing a hardship right now, ask yourself the question, what character trait is God trying to grow in me through this this experience. Here's a third insight. Change your perspective. Grow your character. Number three, increase your wisdom. Increase your wisdom. Pick it up at verse five. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. How many times have you said to yourself in the midst of a trial, I just don't know what to do? I mean, I really think I could persevere through this trial if I just knew what God wanted me to do. If I was just sure I was on the right path, I could take a beating and keep on, keep on going. You ever face that? Ever ask that question, what am I to do? Let's say you're facing a pile of bills you can't pay. What should you do? Should you, A, get a second job? B, sell one of your cars? C, borrow some money from your parents? D, declare personal bankruptcy? E, all of the above? F, none of the above? G, A and B but not C? (laughs) H, you get the idea. Or let's say that, that, that your marriage is currently lifeless, and so you're wondering, what, what do I do? Should I confront my spouse? It's pretty obvious. Should I go see a counselor? And, and if I go see a counselor, should I go on my own, or should I take my spouse with me? Should we separate for a couple of months? Should I buy two tickets on a cruise ship to, to rekindle our passion? Inquiring minds want to know. James says the most important thing you need in the midst of a trial is wisdom. And there's only one place to go to get it. You go to God. You drop to your knees, not as a last resort. Well, I've tried everything else. Might as well pray. But as a first resort, you drop to your knees and you cry out. And the thing you cry out for is wisdom. God, give me wisdom. And I love what James tells us about God and how he responds to that kind of prayer. He tells us a couple interesting things about God. First, that God is a generous giver. You ask for wisdom and God will generously give it to you. And verse 6, verse 5 adds, without finding fault. In other words, you come and you ask for, for wisdom and what you will not hear from God is, it's about time, you knucklehead, you know. Or, or, or God will not say to you, well, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to put you on hold for a while, just like you've been putting me on hold. No. 
You ask for wisdom in the midst of your trial, and James says God is going to give it without finding fault. Now, there's one qualification that James adds to this offer. You see it? Verse 6. When you ask for wisdom, James says you've got to act like you really expect God to give it to you. If you doubt that the wisdom is coming, if you pray for wisdom and then you just continue to wring your hands over your trials, well, God is not going to respond because God responds to faith. And, and the picture that James paints here of the person who asks God for wisdom but doesn't really believe that God's going to give the wisdom, it's an interesting picture. Look at verse 6. That person is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. Now, James is not talking about a violent storm at sea here. He's, he's talking about normal waves that go up and down and back and forth and up and down and back and forth. You, you ever, ever been on a boat on a choppy lake, chop, choppy sea? You know, my, my father-in-law used to love fishing on Lake Erie. And so occasionally, I'm not much of a fisherman, but occasionally I'd go out with him. And he had, for years, he had this small 16-foot boat, and we would go miles out from shore. I mean, we would be in the middle of nowhere, and he'd toss out an anchor, and we'd fish for half a day. And that little boat, Lake Erie's rather shallow, so it's, it's pretty choppy, choppy. That boat would go up and down, up and down, back and forth, back and forth, up and down and back and forth. And I would come home so green with seasickness. Friends, that's the person who asks God for wisdom and then they go out and second-guess every decision they make. They ask God for wisdom and then they change their mind a hundred times. They ask God for wisdom and then they complain, complain, complain about this trial to everyone who will listen. They're up and down, back and forth, up and down, back and forth. James says, nobody's going to get wisdom from God with that sort of an approach. You've got to believe and then act upon, in faith, act upon the wisdom that you assume God has given you. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. Some of you are thinking, well, you know, I tried this and it didn't work. You know, I asked God for wisdom. I had like three options in front of me in the midst of a trial. And when I got done with my prayer, when I said amen, I had no more idea which option to go with than before I prayed. Let, let me suggest to you that wisdom isn't always given to us in the form of knowing which option is best. In fact, the fact of the matter, listen, the fact of the matter is sometimes all the options are equally good and God doesn't care which one you choose. What he wants is you to follow the path, whichever path you choose, wisely. That's where the wisdom comes in. You see, you see the difference here? You know, maybe if I illustrate, you'll see it. Let's say that you're a parent and you've got a rebellious teenager. That's your trouble right now. That's your hardship. And they've just done something super defiant, and you know you've got to discipline them, so you're looking at your options. And, you know, option one, you're going to take away their cell phone. Option two, you're going to make them sit down with a counselor at school. Option three, you're going to uh, move the family away and not tell your teenager where you've moved to. <laughs> Which is the right option? You pray. God doesn't seem to lead. Well, maybe any of the three, well, maybe not the third one, but maybe, maybe the first two are equally valid. What God's interested in is will you follow whichever path you choose wisely? So we're talking about discipline. Will you do the biblical thing? Will you be self-controlled? Will you be firm so whatever path you choose, you're, you'll follow through on it? 
Will you work together with your spouse as father and mother in disciplining this child? See, there are a whole lot of things you've got to decide how you'll do it wisely. You get it? Good. So that's how God gives wisdom. The next trial you face, increase your wisdom by prayerfully asking God for such. Then move ahead on the assumption that God is guiding you and in the process making you into a wise person. Number four, realign your values. Realign your values. Pick it up at verse 9. Believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position. But the rich should take pride in their humiliation since they will pass away like a wild flower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away even while they go about their business. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial. Because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. Now, these verses require a bit of explaining. Let's start with verse 9. Believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position. That's not too difficult to understand. James is saying if you're somewhat poor, but you have Christ in your life, oh, for goodness sake, You're a a child of God. You have a high position. So keep that in mind when you're navigating your way through trials. Keep in mind that you've got the most important thing in life. Now, verse 10, this one's a stickler. Conversely, he says the rich should take pride in their humiliation. Just an insert here. When he says the rich, that includes everyone who's hearing my voice right now at our four campuses. Everyone. You say, I'm out of work. You're still rich. Internationally speaking, you got food on the table, a roof over your head. You're a wealthy person. James says, the rich person ought to take pride in his or her humiliation. What is he talking about? James is saying, there are going to be times of trial in your life, and they're going to humiliate you. And it doesn't matter if you have a nice income. It doesn't matter if you have a nice house, a late model car, if you take expensive vacations. doesn't matter because that stuff won't insulate you from trials. It won't keep you out of cancer. It it won't protect you from trouble in your marriage or from your son announcing he's gay or from the stress of office politics or or from being gossiped about by your friends at school. So your money, your stuff, your status is not going to be able to protect you from your trials. Those trials are your humiliation. They're a constant, listen, they're a constant reminder of how helpless and vulnerable you are. In fact, one day, James says, you're going to pass away just like a wild flower that withers in a couple of hours under a scorching heat. Isn't that a bummer? Well, actually, James says... The realization of that is a good thing. When when trials make you feel helpless, make you feel vulnerable, say to yourself, yay, I'm helpless, I'm vulnerable. Take pride in the powerlessness of your money and what your money can buy. Why would you do that? Why would you say, yes, I'm helpless, I'm vulnerable? Because if you'll say that, maybe you won't become so attached to stuff. If you remind yourself of that in the midst of your trial, maybe you'll depend more upon God. 
Maybe you'll realize it's time I start investing my time and my effort in things that are going to matter for eternity. See, trials have a way of waking us up to the reality that we have been pursuing the wrong things. Last Tuesday night, Sue and I got a text. We were crawling into bed. We got a text from a dear friend of ours, neighbor. And he said, I just wanted you guys to know the last few minutes I've been holding my wife's hand as she passed away. Fighting cancer for eight years. You know, cancer has a way of clarifying what's important in life, doesn't it? Not only for the person who gets it, but for loved ones. And so a few days later, this past Thursday, we had my friend over for dinner. What do you think we talked about? Think we talked about the Cubs? We're both Cubs fans. Didn't come up. We talk about what movies we've seen recently. Talk about where we're going on vacation. Yeah. It's not that things like this can't be talked about, but in in that moment, in the moment of trial, we had a clear sense of what was important. We talked a lot about God, what difference God makes in a person's life when they're going through something like this. See, trials remind us of what's eternally significant. Trials remind us, or realign rather, our values. And once we get our values realigned, then we're better prepared for the next trial. So trials push us toward God, and then God invades our our life afresh, and now we're able to look at life from a different perspective, different values, and we're we're better suited to face the next trials that come. You know, I'll never forget something that uh, Kurt Warner, the uh, former NFL quarterback, said to a reporter from Sports Illustrated several years back. Kurt's been retired for a couple of years, but... Uh, At the time, he had just taken his team from behind in the closing minute of a game and marched his team down the field, won the game, and so the reporter from Sports Illustrated said to him, you looked so calm on the field. I mean, you looked like you had ice water in your veins. How do you do that? The the clock is ticking. 300-pound guys want to murder you. Your receivers aren't open. How do you stay so calm? And Kurt Warner, who's a Christ follower, said, it's because football isn't the most important thing in my life. See, if football was, he said, then those closing seconds would have been unbearable, very stressful if this was the biggest thing I got going in my life. But it's not. God is. God is. That's what trials will do to you. They'll thrust you back into the arms of God. And then once you come back to God and realign your values, you're better suited to face future trials. Trials are a test. This is a test. In fact, that would be the one line to take away from this sermon. The next hardship you face, look in the mirror and say, this is a test. So change your perspective. Grow your character. Increase your wisdom. Realign your values.